Um, I want to just move on just to, to kind of take us back to your uh, captivity. And in that moment, how that moment you use it in order to continue your scholarship and imagine it in new ways. So you um, have said before that you used it, you used, you know, these endless days as an opportunity for your own field work. What were you talking about? Can you tell us more about that? Well, um, as I said, on the third day, after long days of shouting matches and and screaming at me for being trained by CIA and MI6, um, and also they insisted to, they kept asking because I, we, when I was a student, a graduate student, uh, with along with um, nine other um, women from the Muslim context, we set up a network because we realized all of us know about women's movement in the West, but we know nothing about what is happening in our neighboring country. Well, earlier on in the history, in the 19, uh, early 1900, even though traveling was difficult, there was no phones and all that, women were much more in touch with one another. So we had set up this network of women living under Muslim laws. And we had used that. Now, women living under Muslim laws, not just Muslim women, because without the Christians and and the Jews and Baha'is and Zoroastrians all live in, in this context are affected by by Muslim traditions. So they kept telling me, was it CIA that told you to set up? Was it was it uh, um, MI6 gave you the budget? And and I kept saying there was no budget. We were just students, and we decided. And they shouted and shouted. And in the end, I said, if you tell me who told the Iranian people to have a revolution, I will tell you who told us. To, to set up the network. And so that was the end of it. But at that time, I came up, when I came up that day, I said, okay, this is when I am going to treat this as a research and reflect on that. As, and as someone who who I taught human rights courses for 12 years in the sociology and anthropology department, so I thought, well, this is an opportunity for me to do anthropology of interrogation and see how human rights and constitutional rights are treated, but also the technique they use to demoralize people. So that became in some way a survival strategy for me. I mean, I didn't think of it like that at the time. But in some way, yes, I was object of their interrogation, but at the same time, they were object of my my academic research. So I would um, think about it and I would look at it and I come and well, I didn't have a pen and pencil because they don't give you paper. Um, so I would just pretend I was writing it on the wall to, to help me to think and memorize what was happening. I spent hours and hours every day just writing on the wall as though I was writing on the board. So how did you write with your toothbrush? <laughs> Well, I was actually, since I had nothing else, I, the only thing, equipment I had was my toothbrush. So I use it. <laughs> I use, hold it like a pen and just wrote it on the wall. I mean, not actually writing was pretend. It's the act of writing that helps people to think and write. And this is not um, something new that I have done. Apparently, this is what historically we know we have documents I didn't notice at the time that people have been doing this for a thousand years. They would write with their fingers on their ears to try to think and memorize because the act of writing helps um, helps 
thinking and reflecting on issues and also at the same time memorizing. So I did that during uh, while I was there, which of course sometimes when they had mo- moved me to again to my individual cell, they would bring one other young person to put with me. And uh, they were, they thought I was crazy spending so all my time writing, <laughs> pretending that I'm writing on, 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 the, on the marble stone of the wall. Uh, so, but this is how I, it helped me to, to reflect on, on these issues. And it was very, very important because then it, it also helped me to be much more observant of the various technique, you know, not just good cup and bad cup, but but the various technique and different different integrators because I had I had many of them uh, would adopt in order to to make me say what they want me to say. How 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 do you mean? So saying things like what? Well, they because they were they wanted me to to admit that I have been sent there by the foreign state because that's how they could then show that I was actually an agent and I was at that time they were still interested in uh, in, in implicating vice president on women's affair and that I had influenced her in her strategies and encouragement of women to participate in the election so they they would use and they used any meeting that I had gone or any research I had done, and uh, including, well, I had worked on family planning and women uh, and family laws and refugees. How did I, it happen that I now write on women and politics? I said my book, which is published in English, is Electoral Politics. It's uh, actually was published in uh, 2011, does not even have a reference to Iran. So they would say, well, you because you are clever, you knew if you write about Iran, then you can use the book here. I said, but if I had written about Iran, then you would say, you see, you wrote about Iran. (laughs) Oh, wow. There's no winning here. I couldn't couldn't win. Yeah. (laughs) And then you couldn't stay silent either. So this is is not looking good. No, so I I argued about all these cases, but then I, I thought, well, and all the time I ask for to, to be able to see my lawyer, but they not only they didn't let me see my lawyer, but they were pressuring me to change my lawyer, which was uh, which is against the Iranian law. Uh, I wasn't talking about human rights laws or international laws. They kept telling me they have they don't need international laws because they have Islamic human rights. So every now and then when they were pressuring me in that way, I said, oh, is this part of this the Islamic human rights? And then they would get quiet because they knew what they were talking about. And when they were trying to break my spirit at some stage, they played the music um, which was played in my husband's funeral. And so they had that on my iPad as a film and they played it to me too. Supposedly that for me to remember Canada, I kept saying, I don't want it. Please turn it off. You know why you're using this. And they told me that, no, we just want you to remember Canada. In the end, when um, I was so furious because I knew why they are doing this, I said, okay, is this part of the Islamic human rights? I mean, when I was so angry, when I said that, they stopped the music at that time. That's really and, vile, actually. I think, and for our listeners, uh, the context, 
you this these interrogations were taking place between March and something like September, and your husband had just passed away in December 2015. So we're talking about a difference of months when part of your trip to Iran was in fact part of that grieving process, no? Well, actually, my husband passed away in uh, in 2014, but I was still dealing with my uh, situation there. I had actually gone for early retirement because we both wanted to travel, including traveling in the Middle East a little bit more. And my and so I thought if I have early retirement, we can we can do that while I finish my books that are sitting on my desk for so long because I don't get um, the chance to finish them. So, but then by the time just six months before finalization of my retirement, my my spouse passed away. And so it was a little bit of a readjusting to living alone again after 27, 28 years. And then being retired with the purpose of being able to be with him and writing my book. So it was a adjustment. And I, at that stage, I thought it would be good for me to travel a little bit, go to Britain to be with my family who live in Britain. And also go to Iran and uh, collect my archive material, but also visit friends and families there and travel a little bit, which I, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to travel. I'm incredibly sorry about that, that kind of interrogation and, and that kind of treatment. And I'm sure it's the tip of the iceberg of the rest of the experience, though very appreciative for, for, your, for your spirit and, and for your continuing work. Um, well, I had um, I had some writing project now. Obviously, I I've become much more interested in academic freedom. The one of the other things they told me because I criticized them for for these um, breaking of um, my rights and academic freedom. Um, they kept saying, "Well, we we just arrested you. Look at what is happening in Turkey. They're arresting uh, academics by their thousand. So they brought that up to you. Oh, yes, yes. They were very, um, so they kind of felt they are much better than Turkey, which was supposed to be the democratic state in, in the Middle East. So they frequently reminded me of the fact that they are treating me well and um, they didn't subject me to physical torture. I mean, the fact that they were shouting, the fact that they would, um, the interrogation session would go eight, nine hours sometime, and also the fact that a uh, couple of times I was really very, very, very sick and I could barely talk and I could barely sit in a chair and they they acted as though I am pretending to be sick. And so so when I complained to them about that, then they would tell me, well, you're not as bad as Turkey. Like they, they arrest academicians by, by their thousands. So that was a warning, warning point for me that now we have, until now, at least people would say Turkey is more more democratic. Now we have none of the states in the Middle East who can have that claim. Turkey is arresting by the thousand. Iran has never been kind to the scholars and to um, to its critique or didn't leave any space for opposition within within Iran and. And we have the Egyptian case now, and we have Libya. The whole situation is like, is not helping uh, citizens as such. So I became much more concerned and I spent quite a lot of time thinking about these topics and following the case, especially after, finally, after 
the first months or months and some weeks, they gave me newspapers and Iranian newspapers that I could read. And I read about development in Turkey, which Iranian newspaper followed very closely. So that was not um, lifting my spirit, to say the least. No, absolutely. I mean, those conditions that you describe obviously are are very daunting and and represent um, just a horrific condition uh, for for people of the Middle East. I mean, the Middle East is so vast and it's, it's good to be particular, but even the, the states that you mentioned where there are sites of counter-revolution as in Egypt, um, as in uh, Libya, as in crackdown um, in Turkey, but where even the possibilities of being able to teach and be an academic are severely compromised by constant conditions of uh, brutal uh, civil war in Syria and obviously um, of apartheid and occupation in Palestine. These are these are um, incredibly daunting moments, and yet at the same time, it's very interesting the way uh, how people of the Middle East, uh, in quotation marks, are discussed as both being horribly evil and horribly oppressed. And so that you lose this sense of um, agency in between. And and that becomes the work. That becomes uh, a lot of the work of scholars on the Middle East who are trying to provide, as you are, um, nuance, um, trying to provide um, textured ways of understanding this that are productive rather than uh, monochromatic. Yes, and it's not an easy, easy task. It's quite complex to be able, because the situation is so diverse, in, even yeah. within, within one state. And, uh, and also politics is very dynamic in the Middle East. And so we have, we have to deal with several, uh, the continuous change, uh, change of political context, what is happening on the ground, and also um, the reaction to a whole lot of journalistic and and um, scholarly um, production of knowledge which doesn't reflect always the complexities of what is on the ground in most of the Middle Eastern um, societies. That's right. Well, with that, thank you so much for joining Status Hour. Thank you for helping us contribute to the production of knowledge uh, through your own story and experience. And we'll definitely be in touch with you as you continue to, you know, as we see the fieldwork emerge uh, <laughs> uh, from your captivity, um, but also um, the work uh, that you'll be doing and hopefully we'll be doing with you in, in, in defense and strengthening of academic freedom. Yes, well, thank you for having me. Yes, I think it's very important that we should continue have this discussion about academic freedom, critical thinking in our in the context in the Middle East, and also broadening because academic freedom is not just a Western rights. It's and it's not a rights that is should be uh, in just in one state or one under one state. It, we should look at it as a as a collective global rights because production of knowledge is not dependent on just the one boundaries of one country, but and we don't have to reproduce knowledge. Um, that is already produced in one country in another context. Similarly, academic freedom is a global, is a collective right that we should view it as a global 
rights and therefore protection of it in all contexts should be part and parcel of thinking about academic freedom. On that note, thank you, Hama, so much. And we look forward to having you again. Thank you very much. 